If you'll join me uh, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you want to use the Bible that's in the pew, it's on page 967. This is a passage that resumes after not just one, but two breaks. One a rather short break, and then a pretty large break. So just a little bit of an outline before we start. We're actually going to back up to the top of the page to verse 11. Because what Ryan dealt with last week, chapter 6, 14 through chapter 7, verse 1, and your Bibles probably has that cordoned off as the temple of the living God. Uh, Verse 2 basically takes up where verses 11 and 13 left off. Okay, so people see this as a little parenthesis in a way for Paul, uh, the temple of the living God. And then he gets back to what he was talking about, and you'll see that. And then also, here's a big one, that all the way back in chapter 2, Uh, verse uh, 10 and 11 um, and through verse 12 and 13, he was talking about his moving from uh, going from Troas to Macedonia and looking for Titus and all of that kind of thing, some difficulties he was struggling with some time before. Well, verse 5 takes up from all the way back in chapter 2. So you see in chapter 2, verse 13, I did not find my brother Titus, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And here in chapter 7, verse 5, for even when we came into Macedonia. That's a pretty big aside, okay? Uh, chapter 2, verse 14, all the way through uh, chapter 7, the first part of 7. And as people have said, Paul regularly has these little asides in his writing. And we have some of the richest things we've ever seen in the scripture because of them. So we're very grateful that Paul uh, takes off and talks about these rich things and returns to his uh, travel narrative, so to speak. All right, so let's start then with 6.11, and you'll see how well this relates to what we read in 7 verse 2. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. And then chapter 7, verse 2, as he returns to that, make room in your hearts for us. So he'd been saying widen your hearts, now he uses a different word, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. And that's anticipating what he's about to say for what happened in Macedonia. Now we get back to the travel narrative. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, 
comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, bless us to not only understand this part of your word that you've given to us, but Lord, to take it into our hearts, to be refreshed and encouraged and transformed, to be brought, Lord, to new aspects of of love and repentance in our lives. We rest in you that you would do this for your glory and honor. Amen. There's a, a movie that Kay and I have enjoyed that really sets this passage up in a, in a good way. It's called Family Man. Uh, I'm sure many of you have seen this. Nicolas Cage is the star in it. Despite that, it's a good... No, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> So Nicolas Cage is Jack Campbell, and the beginning of the movie, it shows Jack about to go to an internship in England, and Kate, his fiance or maybe girlfriend at that point, is urging him not to go because she's afraid they won't stay together if he goes to England. And he says, she says a famous line that he actually repeats to her later, I believe in us, I believe in us. No matter what, let's stay together. Well, he doesn't do that. He leaves, and it shows 13 years later. Jack Campbell is single. Jack is uh, head of <clears throat> Lassiter, P.K. Lassiter Investment House. He's a very rich man. Uh, they're working on a billion-dollar uh, deal that's coming up. And he's only about himself. Uh, in fact, the, this part of the movie takes place on Christmas Eve, and he's oblivious that it's Christmas Eve. He doesn't care that it's Christmas Eve. He reprimands one of his uh, guys in the, uh, at the board meeting uh, because he's concerned that it's Christmas Eve. 
Uh, it's 8.30 at night. He's the only one there with a few helpers, and uh, he has no aspect or no prospects of relationship that night or the next day. Well, on the way home, little run-in in a, uh, a quick stop, and <clears throat> he helps a situation and comes outside, and Don Cheadle, who's uh, kind of the resident angel who sh- uh, comes in and out of the story, uh, is about to walk off, and, and he's trying to help Don che- Cheadle because he looks like a guy that needs help and all this, and Don Cheadle says, oh, you're trying to help me. He says, what do you, what do you need, Jack? And Jack says, I don't need anything. I don't need anything. And Don says, oh, is that right? You don't need anything. And then Don says, you brought this on yourself. You brought this on yourself. And he didn't know what in the world he's talking about. Like, what did I bring on myself? Well, when he wakes up the next day, he's not in his high penthouse, the biggest one in the whole rich place, uh, all by himself. He wakes up and he's got... That lady that he left 13 years ago is his wife, and he's got two children. That's the title, Family Man. And he is absolutely freaked out. He just can't stand it. He hops in their van and drives into the city, finds out that he's not known at his uh, condominium. He's not known at work. He's not the president anymore. He has no life that he had. He's only got this life with the family. And, of course, initially for him... He just descended into hell, you know. I mean, that's, that's his, his view of it, that I, I just want my life back. He, he, he sees Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle now has his Ferrari. Uh, he's driving around. He says, I just want my life back. I just want my life back. And Don says, this is a glimpse. And he says, you're going to have to work this out. Well, the course of the movie, he begins to discover who he really is. And he starts discovering what relationship is. There's this amazing point in the movie where he is being frisky with his wife and she wants him to say that thing that he always says. And he says something really inappropriate to her, which he regularly said with women, apparently. And she just is offended and walks off. And that night he happens to pop in a video of a birthday celebration when he sang this soupy, soupy song to her, la, 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 I love you, you know, sings this. Yeah, that's about how it sounded too. Um, and he just watches himself and he watches all these people stare at him and her and how they have this relationship and how he adores her and loves her. And I love the final scene. It just shows him barely above the chair, his head just stuck there looking at the TV and it's like his whole life passes before him. Like, I've never loved anything. I, I loved her. I, you know, well, Don Cheadle shows up again and this time he doesn't want to go back. He says, he even tells Don Cheadle, he knows he, he, this may be the night he has to go back and he says, I'm going home. I'm going home. It's like, leave me alone. I've got my new life. I don't want to go home to that life. Interesting, isn't it? I would tell you that his heart, in terms of what Paul says here, had become enlarged. Enlarged. To embrace relationship. To embrace love. Not anymore closed off and restricted and hunkered down. 
only lost in things, but it had found out what the meaning of life is to embrace people, to embrace relationship, to embrace family. And you'll have to see the rest of the movie. <clears throat> we don't have time. Um, one of the interesting things in the movie is when Annie, the little girl, first is around him, she says, you're not my father, are you? <laughs> and she thinks that he's an alien. You know, he's inhabiting the body of her father. She said, they did a good job. You know, like the way you look. Um, but then at the end of his time there, she says, welcome back, daddy. Welcome back, daddy. And that's, that's like a parable. Welcome back, Jack Campbell. Welcome back to humanity. Welcome back to meaning. Welcome back to relationship. Welcome back to who we're made to be, in a sense. Of course, there's some comedy. Uh, there's some comedy there. That he says, "Here he was, the president of Invest- Lasseter Investment House." And when she first tells him, as he's dropping her off, "Where do I go now?" She says, "You go to Big Ed's. Big Ed's Tires. That's his father-in-law." He says, "I'm a tire salesman." I sell tires. You know, he's just like this because he was a you know, multimillionaire. Anyway, let's quit that. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's one too many things. I know, that was one too many. Um, <clears throat> but you see, the, the title of our, uh, our the, the, the sermon is Open and Broken Hearts. Okay? But I, we want to take it separately. An open heart and a broken heart. And I want to draw the connection eventually that the only way to have an open heart is to have a broken heart. And if you have a broken heart, it will become an open heart to others. And this is what Paul is dealing with here. We we saw, right, verse 11, uh, our hearts wide open to you, you widen your hearts to us. Or in verse uh, chapter 7, verse 2, make room in your hearts for us. Good way to think about that is to populate your heart with affections for others. Let your heart be this rich orchard. Keep putting more and more trees in the orchard of affection and love, a garden. Or you might even think of it as filling your heart with the treasure of concern and affection for others. Or a pantry. Kay loves the fact that when uh, our children come to our house, even now, they go to the refrigerator and they open it up. And I think, at least for our boys, it's the contrast with their refrigerator. You know, you open up this refrigerator where somebody cooks and has all these wonderful things and they just stare at it. They just look at it, you know. And that's to have a pantry or a heart full of rich things to pull out to spend and give yourself away to others. Having a wide and open heart is to be nourished. It's to be enriched yourself and to bring that enrichment to others. An enlarged heart is not a good thing physically, right? It's a dangerous thing. But it is a wonderful thing spiritually and emotionally for us. When we were, uh, went with the Wisers to a missions uh, trip years ago to Ukraine, we were struck by the vast, vast fields of sunflowers, right? And think of that as a contrast to a sunflower that 
a field of sunflowers, but there, there's a sunflower every hundred yards. Just think of the difference in those two fields. One is just covered with these bright yellow flowers everywhere you look, just stunning. Or one in which there are just a few flowers here and there. Which field is a good field? We see what Paul is saying. Widen your heart so that it's got rich sunflowers that are bursting everywhere of affection, room for other people where their concerns, their interests populate your life constantly. Fill your heart. As several have said about this passage, an enlarged heart is a joyful heart to give away, to give itself away, which is interesting given our mission, our vision statement, nourishing uh, or nurturing a joy for loving others. That's nurturing an enlarged heart. It's a heart that is generous, a heart that is enthusiastic to do good for others and to speak well of others. And if these attitudes, basic attitudes of affection and love are in your heart, then more people will bring in your heart, right? This will bring an increasing happiness and freedom in your life to be other-centered and self-forgetful, as Tim Keller says. And think about this. Who has the ultimate enlarged heart? That's God, isn't it? Think how wide and great the heart of God is. We sang about it. We sang about the sacrifice of Christ, all these things that he went through so that we would have such benefits, to go through such pain that we would receive such benefit. Look how wide the heart of God is. It goes to all kinds of people and it goes to us even in our rebellion and hatred against him. The great unlimited heart of God. And the good news in the gospel is that God has always had this large heart. Because he dwells in relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he has always eternally been generous and open and wide toward the others within the Trinity. He knows nothing else except this wide, eternal uh, generosity and joy and enthusiasm uh, for relationship. And so we become more like God. We become more like Christ when our heart is opened up. And the opposite is true. Uh, The opposite of this is, on the one hand, the kind of heart that's basically going to cut itself off emotionally from others, okay? Shut down, numb, unfazed, withdrawn, emotionless, nonchalant, not too involved, casual, not too concerned ever for what other people are going through. So isolated and removed, safe, even-tempered, stable, unflustered, undisturbed, uncontrolled by what other people are going through, unbothered by that. Or it can be a different way to keep people out of your heart. You operate by being critical, by being suspicious, always smelling a rat, Harsh and severe judgment of others, quick to judge others, jumping to negative conclusions quickly, pigeonholing someone 
almost immediately. Cutting them down in your mind or to others. Picking them apart. Seeing the underside of every situation. This just keeps, keeps you at distance. See? Keeps people out of your heart. We always say when I'm... Not always, but in some some marriage ceremonies, I talk about the fact that now you're getting married, you're going from driving down Main Street to driving down the backside through the train tracks in small towns. Small towns would go, instead of driving down the pretty front side of things, you're driving down the backside, the ugly side of where the, all the garbage is. And I say, that's what marriage is like in a way. You'll see some beautiful things, but you're going to see some not so pretty things as well. But that's interesting how we can almost view every encounter or collection of people uh, from purposely that kind of trained view of things. So we can shut people out or write them off either through just sheer neglect, uninvolvement, or active criticism. And also we keep people at a distance Because we don't really admit them to our heart. Because we assess them in terms of how profitable it will be to know them. How beneficial will it be to know them? What is in it for me socially to position myself with others? How likable is this person? How easy will this person be to uh, care for? What will this cost me? It's another way we keep people out of our hearts. Because of the cost of it. Because of the time involved. Because of the emotional investment that it could be. Rather than thinking in this way, always having the opportunity and possibility that I will widen myself and embrace this person in some new way. See, asking the question, what are the needs of this person? How could I comfort or serve or encourage this person? How could I listen How can I enter into the story? How can I come alongside? How can I discover? How can I even enjoy their story? I think of, Kay and I talk about this, and you've seen this as well. Every person's life is a novel, really. Now, some are more difficult and interesting than others, but every person, and especially when you take you and your extended family, it's an incredible novel. Do we have that kind of interest in one another? That kind of seeing someone as this potential delight that could, that could bring to me just by their sheer existence, their sheer story that they have or she has. You see, opening yourself up, appreciating strengths from someone, not being intimidated by those strengths or threatened by those strengths or, or jealous or envious of those strengths, not reacting with disgust or contempt at weakness, rather that rather compassion. If you have a large enlarged heart spiritually, it defends you against judging or thinking the worst of people and Insecurity and arrogance and irritability and angry. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, love doesn't do these things. Love doesn't do these things. These are just, these ways that we close ourselves off from one another, they're just the various ways we hate each other. Do you understand that? They're just the various ways we hate each other. 
But we always keep it into the... Not to commit sin, we think, is fine. But God says, you can't omit good either. We talk about the sins of commission and omission. Omission is disobedience. Omitting kindness. Omitting the embrace of others. And admitting them into your affections. And I like how one man put it. We've got to realign our heart boundaries. Realign our heart boundaries. So that my boundary doesn't just go here, but it goes outside of you. And now you're inside my boundary. You're inside my affections. That's what Paul talks about in in the first letter to Corinth when he talks about our being in the same body. We have the same care for one another, he says. If one rejoices, all rejoices. If one weeps, everyone weeps. What is that? We're in the same boundary, right? You're you're in my heart. Your concerns are my concerns. And of course, as Paul says here... We want to be the kind of person that others want to widen their heart for. So it goes both ways because Paul says um, here in verse 2, we took no advantage of anyone. We didn't corrupt anyone. We didn't wrong anyone. He's basically saying you've restricted your heart, seven, uh, 6 verse 12. There's no reason for you to restrict your heart. We're not here to harm you. We're here to do you good. Verse 3 says, we uh, are not quick to condemn. We're not condemning you for that you haven't done these things or that you've jumped to conclusions about us. We're, you're in our hearts. Whether we live or die, you're in our hearts. We live and die with you. Our whole life is bound up with you. And so Paul is laying out his, uh, his, uh, and opening up his heart. He says, we are bold. We act with great boldness or spoke with great boldness. And this probably means boldness in showing his affections. He's so open and honest with his feelings and his concern. He talks so openly about his joy. When he says there in verse 4, anticipating the, the seeing of Titus. He's talking about the way I am now because Titus has come. I'm filled with comfort in all my affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. My joy depended upon knowing that you were doing well. Just imagine how vulnerable he is. He said, I don't do well if you're not doing well. I was in turmoil. He says at one point in this same letter, the, the pressure of the anxiety of all the churches is on me. He's constantly concerned because the boundary of his heart embraces these people. That's, it's, it's hard to live that way in some ways. It's the most satisfying thing in the world, though. It's the richest, most satisfying thing in the world. But if you love others this way, You will be controlled by their well-being or lack of it. You will be stricken. You will be brought low as Paul was again and again. Because his whole concern was for their well-being. And he says, even when we went to Macedonia, we were still afflicted. We had fears. But God brought us comfort. 
through Titus giving us the report about you. He talks about his joy. He talks about his comfort, his encouragement, hearing how his letter had, that they had such a response to that letter. There was repentance because of that letter. And so here's his openness again and again in this passage. Uh, we don't have time to just to name it, but as you read through it, you'll see it. And here's the capacity that the people of God have to bring joy or sadness to their leaders. All right? If, if leaders are really invested in you, if are really concerned for you. Isn't it interesting in Philippians 2, 1 that Paul says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, by having the same concern for one another. Interesting that he lays that out as a motivation. He says, I, I can have no joy. I can have no satisfaction unless I see you prospering spiritually, relationally, in your fellowship. Make my joy complete. The same thing happened with the Corinthians that had happened earlier with the Thessalonians because he had been thrown out of Thessalonica so quickly after a few weeks and he just didn't know how how they were doing. And when he finally heard from Timothy how well they were doing, he actually says, now we live. He talks about joy and comfort, but I love that phrase, I'm alive again. You think, I don't know if you should be that dependent on the well-being of others. And it's not that Paul didn't trust God. It didn't. No, let's put it this way. It's because Paul is like God. Because as Zechariah says, chapter 2, verse 8, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You know, the apple is the little pupil, right? That's what they call the apple. And he said, He who touches you, it's like he pokes God in the eye. That's how sensitive God is to when you're hurt. Is God weak because of that? No, that's his glory. It's the glory of his love. He is not unconcerned. He is not uncaring. He is not cordoned off, separated from our love and concern, uh, love and concern for others. There's more to say, but, you know, my dad was a doctor. And I remember we were in his little Austin Healy, and we went to this house uh, one night uh, for a house call back when they did house calls. And dad walked into this house. It was in the projects. And so he walked into this house, and he came back out, got in the car, and he said, well, she died. She was dead. He said she was dead. And I was maybe 11 years old. And I thought, you just saw a dead person? You know, I was just, I was just stricken with the fact that there were, there's a dead person in that place over there. And you just saw this dead person. But what for my dad, that she was dead, you know. I remember taking this uh, Doberman Pinscher for a friend who had moved away. And we were caring for the dog. But the, found out that the dog had heartworms and it had to be put down. And I can remember sitting there with this giant dog was so powerful, so strong as he pulled me into the doctor's office. He was lying on the table and they had to put it to sleep and suddenly it was gone. And I remember the doctor just saying, get the dog off the table. 
I was, I was kind of traumatized, you know, that I just saw the life of a dog leave right in front of me. For doctors, it's fine. You have to have a certain objectivity to what you do. You have to so that you can care for the patient. But for leaders in the church, for elders and deacons and other leaders and for every believer, that's not an option. It's not an option to get objective. Kay had a lady, you might know the name, but she had a lady tell us when we were in a year internship, uh, and they came to, he came to do a special series of uh, talks for a few uh, nights. And she and Kay were in conversation, and Kay was talking about the fact that we were about to have to leave our year at that church, and we were upset about it because we cared. And, and she actually said, well, after a few of these, you won't feel that way any, anymore. Just cording yourself off. Don't get involved. Don't think, don't, don't, don't love, don't, don't be controlled by the love that you have for other people. I'm going to read this. I'm sure you've heard it before, many of you, but it's appropriate. This is C.S. Lewis. There is no safe investment in terms of love. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin for your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable irredeemable the alternative to tragedy or at least to the risk of tragedy is damnation do you understand that if you're not going to risk love the alternative is damnation the only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers And perturbations or disturbances of love is hell. But as Paul goes on to say, and I'm only going to be able to mention this, perhaps can talk about it at another time. Meet me at my house tonight. I know. No, just kidding. Um, He talks about the opening of their heart and their repentance. And we find out in this passage that it is a broken heart through repentance and faith in Christ that begins to open itself up in new ways to others. The repentant heart is also a heart rich in faith because as Paul says, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. We never repent. We never turn away from sin to begin to put ourselves in the hands of God apart from faith and apart from an expectation of mercy and kindness. In fact, it's that kindness that draws us away from the treasures of this world or the popularity or whatever it is that we're living for. 
we, we begin to realize that living for myself is not as precious as belonging to this kind God who's shown his kindness in Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. And so in Acts, Paul calls it the to God repentance. That's how it is grammatically. The unto God repentance. The, the, that's what repentance is. It's the repentance that wants to embrace God. It's the repentance that turns to God because of seeing the goodness and richness of God. And this faith in his, this helpless trust in his goodness, the helpless trust in his patience, the helpless trust in his kindness and forgiveness, these things begin to populate our lives, you see. They begin to have this powerful expulsion of self so that we are set free to begin to love others in new ways. And that's how repentance shows itself in our lives. It manifests itself in the widening of our hearts as even Paul recounts for them. But he draws this contrast, right, between godly grief that has a repentance without regret, but worldly, uh, without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is because of consequences or embarrassment or loss of position or reputation or popularity or standing or money or opportunity. Uh, I'm, I'm sad that I've been discovered. I'm sad that I acted so foolish. And remorse or sorrow itself is not repentance. Self-condemnation is not repentance. Self-loathing is not repentance. External change is not re- repentance. Even the recognition of sin can be attached to defiance. And maybe abandonment of sin is just prudence. This is the wise course for me, so I won't get in trouble again. It's usually matched in spiritual terms with hopelessness and unbelief, despair that refuses God's goodness. Brothers and sisters, that's a worldly repentance. Worldly grief. That's not godly grief. A worldly grief full of self-loathing and self-condemnation that refuses the goodness of God and won't believe in the goodness of God. That's not come from God. That's worldly grief that only leads to death. Death equals evil here. It only leads to evil in your life. Sorrow without any reference to God. Not a deep repentance that is bound up, as David said, it's against you that I've sinned. You good and gracious God, I sinned against you, Psalm 51. It's the difference in Judas and Peter. Judas, racked over grief over what he had done, throws the silver back and goes, hangs himself. Or Peter, who did deny Jesus, was his sin any less than Judas? Denied him openly. He cursed people that would suggest that he knew him. And yet, by God's grace, he came to be forgiven. He returned. He looked to the mercy of God instead of being given to despair. When we look to God's mercy in repentance... When we come to grips with our sin and yet we embrace God's mercy in the midst of our sin, 
our hearts break open in new ways. And when we continue to experience that love and forgiveness in the face of our sin, and we begin to change, begin to leave our sin, we begin to open our lives more and more to one another. So an open heart is a broken heart. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, as Paul says here about the Corinthians, godly grief worked in them. It works in them. It is your work, Lord. We read in Acts that you're the one exalted, Lord Jesus, to grant repentance. We won't have this genuine repentance. We won't have a true concern about our sin and how it's wronged you. We won't have a repentance that causes us to want you, to want you more than our sin as a way of life, to to embrace your kindness and goodness, to begin to enter into a life of worship and adoration Instead of a life of rebellion and refusal of your goodness. Oh Lord, bring about in our lives, we pray, this kind of repentance, this kind of joy, this kind of openness to embrace others with the love with which you have embraced us. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.